welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Hamilton Rochelle is the head of the Applied Physiology and Nutrition Research Group at the University of Sao Paulo. His research interests include nutrition, sports nutrition, exercise and nutrition in chronic disease and aging, and muscle physiology in response to nutrition and exercise. He is a top researcher, publishing hundreds of studies in reputable journals around the world. His work focuses on nutrition, protein metabolism, studying muscle mass, and looking at those results. Dr. Hamilton Rochelle, welcome to Boundless Body Radio. Hi, Casey. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an absolute honor, and I'm so excited to be talking to somebody who is from Brazil, who is in Brazil. I was so fortunate I got to live there for two years, and I absolutely love it and love the culture and love the people. So it's just way cool to talk to you. I'm so glad you were able to do it. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, I understand you have some Portuguese in you too, right? Uh, Sim, you claro. speak some Portuguese. Yeah. Claro que falo. Good, <laughs> good accent too. Yeah, thank you. well, I don't think the accent is all that great. We're, we're really fortunate. It's it's funny, around here um, in Salt Lake City in Utah, there is a ton of Brazilians. And so it's easy for me to practice. It's been almost, geez, almost like 20 years since I've been down there. And so it, it's allowed me to kind of practice and hopefully keep my Portuguese in somewhat workable level. Um, I know for sure that I can go to a Brazilian steakhouse and order picanha because I just did that the other day. Um, <laughs> man, so so Brazilian steakhouse, this cut of meat called picanha, it is so good, but it is nothing like what you can get down where you are. Yeah, it, it isn't um, nearly like the, the cuts you, you get in US. I, I, I would say, um, correct me if I'm wrong, the closest thing to picanha would be sirloin, but it's not really the same. Yeah, right. I learned last year, I guess they cut it a little bit differently, and that's one of the primary differences. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was down in the south of Brazil, and so that's just where you have the best cows. Every cow is grass-fed. The quality of the meat down there was just so, so good. Man, I miss it. <laughs> <laughs> you ought to come down sometime. Oh, I really need to. I really need to return. Um, I Also, we can't have a conversation without talking about the Seleção. Um, I got to know how my team's playing right now. How, how are they doing? Uh, we actually played yesterday for Copa America, the American Cup. Uh, we didn't do that great. We tied 1-1, I think, with Ecuador, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Uh, I didn't watch the game. I was watching the NBA, to be to be honest. Nice. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, <laughs> That's funny. But, uh, but yeah, uh, we, we, we're, we've, we've been better, I would say. We're not uh, terrible, but... Uh, I, I, I don't think we'll ever be terrible in soccer, but we're not that great anymore, I would say. Huh, gotcha. In the Euro, there's a big matchup between England and Germany, and I just interviewed Chris Cook, who's a former Olympian for Great Britain, and I told him, look, man, in this game, you have to beat Germany because my heart is still broken from 2014 <laughs> that broke every Brazilian Brazilian person's heart. That terrible, terrible match in the World Cup. I just, oh, I, it still hurts. <laughs> Yeah, that 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 will always hurt. Actually, uh, funny thing, I was uh, actually on a plane back to Brazil on that day. I was uh, attending the American College of Sportsmen in the annual meeting that they get that they have, and we went in the plane. Uh, game just started, and when oh. we landed, people were like talking about the score like seven one, and we couldn't believe because it's not something that you expect, right? And then just to find out that it was actually 
true and pretty embarrassing. <laughs> oh, so hard. Man, that's funny. I was at the airport. I was just about to fly somewhere. And it wasn't just like the score. It was the way it happened. Like I went to go order a drink, came back to the table in, you know, went from like the 20th minute to the 25th minute or something like that. And they'd scored like three times just in that one period. And you're seeing just <laughs> the fans like crying in the stadium in Brazil, like this unthinkable. No. <laughs> Uh, well, we can talk uh, Picanha and uh, soccer all <laughs> for the entire episode, if you like. Or we could talk oh, a little yeah. about you and about your research. I'm really curious how you got interested into some of these topics that you're doing so much great research in. Um, actually, I, I've been doing this for a while now. Uh, uh, since undergrads here in Brazil, we do get this um, academic program. It's called Scientific Initi Initiation, where we started in academia as uh, doing simpler research but knowing about uh, uh, how to get around the lab and uh, how to to do studies and I've uh, from the from the start in studying exercise physiology got interested in nutrition uh, sports nutrition and never gave up on this uh, so I went on to to get a, a bachelor in exercise uh, science then a bachelor in in Nutrition. I'm a registered dietitian as well. Then I did masters, the PhD, postdoc. Then became faculty, all in the same uh, field of study. So we've been doing um, exercise physiology and sports nutrition for a while now, and we were very fortunate. I'm very fortunate to to run a, a research group with my best friends. So it's not a, a single head of the the applied physiology and nutrition research group. It's me, Bruno Gualano, and Guilherme Artioli. We're pretty good friends, very good friends. To be honest, we've been uh, uh, working together for several years since grad school. And we all became faculty in the same university where we got our degrees from and got to, to put together the, the, this uh, research group. And it's been great. Wow. That's so cool. What a cool thing to say that you get to work with some of your best friends and you become even closer yeah. over time. That's amazing. It's a real privilege, yeah. Wow. And initially, you said that it was an interest in sports nutrition that kind of led you down this road? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, gotcha. So how has that evolved over time for you? Yeah, um, at first, um, I couldn't really uh, relate to, to nutrition other than uh, the effects of uh, the, the more pure, right? uh, let's say like the more pure sports nutrition when you're focused on uh, performance and this sort of stuff. But then uh, uh, what really got my attention is the potential, is the therapeutical poten potential of exercise and nutrition. And that was about uh, 10 years, a bit more than, than 10 years ago, to be, to be honest, like 2008 or 2009, where we really changed our focus as grad students and started uh, investigating more the, the aspects related to, to health and clinical conditions. And our research group now is uh, uh, affiliated with the School of Medicine to be more precise with the rheumatology department in the School of Medicine, where we have access to, to multiple patients of different conditions and we get to study what exercise and nutrition does to them. And it's pretty rewarding because, uh, uh, it, it, of course, I love sports and uh, most people do. But when uh, uh, it has a different meaning to, to, to do something that really uh, that is really meaning, meaningful to, to a person when when it's 
related to their own health. It, it means more than jumping a little higher or being a little stronger for whatever sport that you're doing. So the clinical aspects of nutrition and exercise really got into us and we've been doing this for the past 10 years, I'd say. Wow, interesting. This is this is an interesting topic because I think a lot of people are told the kind of standard advice of, you know, basically, if you're sick, you should eat less and you should move more. And that's about all anybody says. And so people are stuck being kind of confused or maybe they join a gym and they're, you know, running on a treadmill every day, which may or may not be the best thing for them. What things have you learned about nutrition and exercise over the years that maybe surprised you? Um... One of the things is, uh, uh, and it's more of a newer concept, uh, I would say, that uh, it's, of course, to be to, to be active is paramount, is fundamental. So to be physically active is important. And we can talk about uh, a bit more different forms of being physically active, aerobic, resistance, all of this. But uh, what really struck us uh, a few years ago when we were doing studies on this too is how sedentary behavior also affects you and how uh, uh, you can be physically active and be really sedentary at the same time. There are different concepts, although some people uh, 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 get them mixed up. When you say physically active, you're really talking about meeting the, the guidelines for physical activity. The, the, the standard 150 minutes a week of moderate to vigorous physical activity. But when you're talking about sedentary behavior, talking about hours uh, spent on seating or uh, uh, laying time that they're not that they're uh, within the waking hours, not not accounting for sleep. So it's pretty usual for people to to get up in the morning and do their 30, 45 minute workout and then spend the, the rest of the day sitting down uh, on a chair working on the computer. Then they get it, they get home and they sit on the couch and watch TV and they add up like 10, 12 hours of seating time a day uh, while they're exercising for 30, 45 minutes. And what we've learned in the past years is that one thing might uh, negate the other. So the benefits of exercise might be negated by uh, excessive sedentary behavior, if that's if that makes sense to you. Mm, yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's a really interesting way to think about it because you're right. I think most people, you, they know they need to work out. Once they do it, you know, maybe first thing in the morning, like you mentioned, they'll check that box and then go off and do whatever they have to do. And so what you're saying is you guys have learned that just because you got an hour long workout, that doesn't negate a, a very inactive day. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, there, there's some research coming out in, 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 in this topic and we we doing our own too. But uh, what we observed is that uh, spending too much time in, in sedentary behavior, seating or laying down, it, it's really bad for you. It's bad in different senses. It's bad for insulin uh, sensitivity, for insulin resistance. It's, ba it's bad for endothelial function. It's bad for a whole variety of different physiological parameters. And it's not that you need to... to, to to stand up the whole day. But uh, uh, what we're talking about is like little snacks of physical activity throughout the day. Uh, so you don't spend that many hours on a, on a roll sitting down. So you get up and walk a bit and go get a water and stand up for a while. And if you're at home during the, the, the commercials, you stand up and watch the commercials 
uh, um, standing up, this, this sort of stuff. It, it seems uh, silly, but uh, you see, it, it's supposed to make a difference when you put them together, when you add, add everything up. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's a really simple practical tip that somebody could take. We, you know, not everybody has control over how much they can move at their job or what they do with their family. But yeah, that, I think that's a really interesting and practical way to, um, you know, encourage people to, to move. You, you don't have to do workouts all day, every day or walk all day, every day, but just getting, you know, little bursts of activity here and there. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. And there, there, there are other things that you can do. Let's say you live on a, Let's say like you live on the fifth floor, so you take the the the, the stairs down uh, instead of uh, the elevator up and down, or uh, you, you can stop at the third floor and walk the the, the last two two flight of stairs. Um, this sort of stuff. So you take the bus, you 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 get off the bus one stop uh, earlier, and you walk that way back home. This sort of stuff it, it is enough, so you break up this uh, this excessive sedentary time that that you're spending your your day into. You know. Mm, yeah, that's great. Very practical. I really love that. You have a ton of studies, and I want to talk about a few that you've done during the pandemic here in a few minutes. But before we go there, I want to just ask you, like, what are some of the other studies that you've done that really kind of shaped your career and really influenced the way you think about things? What are some of the favorite ones you've ever done? Uh, we have some studies that we like. We've done uh, recent studies. The, I would say the recent studies, because uh, those are the ones that you remember the most. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, but but we, we've done some cool studies on uh, bariatric surgery patients. And bariatric surgery, at first, we kind of like look at it with a sort of like with a stinky eye, you know, like, do you really need to, to put people through surgery, so, so invasive surgery? Uh, but then we came to understand that uh, um, to this type of obesity, uh, bariatric surgery is actually a interesting alternative of, of therapeutic approach oh. for, for these, these patients. But uh, they're not free of uh, adverse effects. It does get, get you off some... Uh, massive weight you do lose a pretty a pretty good amount of weight uh, after surgery but it comes along with some adverse effects as i was saying and you can and the, the first thing is that you don't lose all fat you do lose a lot of muscle and you do lose a lot of bone and of course this isn't good for you this is actually very bad and the other thing is that some of the metabolic effects that you get, uh, the positive effects that you get in, in metabolism by doing surgery, especially those related with glucose metabolism, uh, they sort of like wane over time if you don't change your lifestyle. So we done, uh, we we went through the literature and we see that uh, the effects tend to 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 uh, they they're not sustainable over time and. There are these other adverse events. So, so we run this pretty big study. Uh, we put three PhD candidates to, to run it. So uh, it was a, a lot of variables that we collected in, in this trial. And we had one pretty good publication that in which we looked at uh, uh, patients that uh, went on to, to do a supervised exercise program after surgery, while the other went to standard care. And what we saw was a 
pretty textbook graph, if I can put it that way. Uh, all of them, uh, um, three months after surgery, had a massive improvement in all of the parameters that you can think of when you're looking at metabolism. They did improve insulin uh, uh, sensitivity. They, they improved inflammation. They improved endothelial function, all of that. And nine months after surgery, those that just went through standard of care who didn't exercise at all, they went back to baseline values. So they were just as, uh, I don't want to, don't want to, don't take it literally, but uh, they, they went back to being just as sick, but they're not, uh, sick is not, is not probably the right word, but they went to, to, to the same status as they were before surgery, even though they were much leaner, they were much uh, lighter because they, they kept losing weight. While the, 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 the group that went through exercise, the six-month exercise program, they had even further benefits. So they add up to the benefits that they had at the three-time post-surgery, the, the three-month uh, uh, post-surgery time point, and uh, exercise add up to that, and they, even, they got even greater uh, improvements in metabolic parameters. So what we learned from that is that uh, uh, surgery get you uh, off some pretty uh, a good chunk of weight but uh, uh, the benefit the metabolic benefits they're not sustainable over time unless you change your lifestyle and then we went on to study uh, the muscle and the bone in the same patients and we found similar results uh, uh, surgery will make you lose a lot of a lot of weight and a lot of muscle and a lot of muscle function and exercise rescues that and even add to, to what you were at baseline. So get you better, get you more functional, get you more healthy. And uh, when you look at bone, the results are similar. And we studied this in different levels from mechanistic uh, 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 strategies. So we did RNA sequencing. We did a, a whole bunch of different biomolecular assessments and we did some clinical parameters as well, like uh, uh, functional assessments, like time to stand tests, time, time up and go tests. Those are really simple clinical tests. So we did a what we liked to, to call a bedside to, to bench approach. Um, and results are pretty cool. And we got to publish this in very reputable journals. So uh, that was a pretty cool set of studies that we ran. Wow, that's super interesting. Did it matter the type of exercise that they did or just any exercise in general? Uh, we did a supervised uh, aerobic and resistance training. So we didn't study the effects of different types of exercise, but what would be recommended for general health. So they did they, their their aerobic. We was walking on a treadmill and they did the resistance for the major muscle groups. Nothing fancy, pretty standard recommenda recommendation for exercise, and it worked fantastically. Wow. That's so interesting. I want to go back a second because I don't even fully think I know the answer to this question. What is bariatric surgery? Because all, all I know is what you said. Like I know it's very invasive and can be a real challenge, but I don't, I don't know what the actual procedure is. What do they do? Uh, there are different techniques for the surgery. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about the, the most common. There's the sleeve gastrectomy where you, you take part of the the, the stomach uh, out. So you, you sort of like clamp it, uh, 
clip it uh, uh, stomach to a much smaller volume. So you eat less because your stomach volume is lesser after surgery. And there are these other technique that's very, um, perhaps is the most used one. Uh, it's called the Ruin Y and uh, gastric bypass. You take out part of the, the intestine and part of the part of the the stomach as well, and you do a bypass. So you, it's a more uh, absorptive uh, technique as well because you lose part of your digestive tract. So you get a smaller uh, um, stomach stomachal volume, and you get a you sort of like bypass some of the intestines. So you, you absorb, so you have a, a lesser absorptive uh, capacity, if I can put it that way. Mm. Wow. Okay. So I used a metabolic cart for many years and I got into the habit of telling people like if they reduce the amount of calories that they consume, yes, they might lose weight. No, they won't lose just fat. They'll lose all the things you mentioned. So, you know, bone density, muscle mass, water mass, you'll lose a lot of different things. And eventually your metabolism will catch up to your new caloric total, which means whatever weight loss you had will then cease. And as soon as you go back to doing what you're doing before, now your metabolic rate has been reduced. And so now you're going to gain all of the weight you lost and then some. So in my brain, I'm thinking like, okay, if we make the stomach smaller, we're limiting the number of calories that can go into the body. Does that have a downstream effect on the metabolism? It does. Uh, you're absolutely right in everything you said. Um, it does have some metabolic effects and, and they seem positive at first. Uh, you do get a modulation of the gastrointestinal hormone secretion. So that's part of why you get a better metabolic um, profile after surgery. So that's one of the reasons why you get a better insulin sensitivity, mm, for instance. Gotcha. Wow, super interesting. Um, let's see, anything else you've learned with the bariatric uh, surgery um, studies that you've done? Yeah, from a personal uh, approach because we're very physiological in what we just said but talking it was a all women group that we studied we didn't include men in in a, in a sample and to understand what uh, uh, it meant to these women it was pretty touch, uh, touching uh, the students actually get to to to, to be more close to them and because they're dealing with them all the time they're doing the research so they're collecting data they're doing the training they're doing the the nutritional advice and all that but we do get the the reports and we we get very and, and sometimes it's very emotional the 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 the, the stories that they tell about uh, how this affected their lives and how uh, their lives are being positively affected as well by the intervention that we're proposing. So that was pretty rewarding as well to, to know that uh, it's good, not just for the body, but um, for their, their selves as a whole. Mm. Wow. That is really cool. <laughs> Must be an amazing feeling to do research that way and like really be changing lives. It's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. I think, I think I probably would have thought the same thing that you did that like, yeah, this, this is probably like a very, very last ditch thing, but it's cool that there's some use and utility. And if it can give somebody their lives back uh, along with a lifestyle change, that's amazing. I, I, I absolutely yeah. love that. 
Wow. We mentioned in the intro, you've done tons of work with protein metabolism and um, the importance of muscle mass. I'd love for you to talk about some studies that are related to that, that you got really excited about. Uh, the, the one study that um, got a pretty good attention in, in me, different media, even from academia to social media, uh, let's say, was the one of the latest studies that we published where we investigated whether vegans and omnivores would be would be prone to, to similar responses to exercise because there's this uh, um, I, I would say urban myth but uh, it has some uh, um, plausibility physiological plausibility to assume that vegans would be uh, would, would be would be a challenge for vegans to gain muscle mass while resistance training. I, I, you probably heard this as well, uh, of course, yeah. right? So uh, you're vegan, you're, all you get is uh, plant-based protein. So you're, you're not gonna gain muscle. You're not gonna uh, bulk up and get uh, muscle strength and muscle mass and all that. And again, there's plausibility to, to, to this argument, but they're based on acute studies more, uh, aimed to, to investigate the physiological aspect of nutrition and it's not really a clinical trial where you assessing a clinical parameter such as uh, muscle mass. You're assessing like biomolecular pathways and different molecular and physiological responses. Mm. And it all uh, uh, pointed towards uh, uh, a better response uh, when you eat animal protein when you compared to uh, to the same amount of plant protein but uh what we wanted to do is that uh, the literature on this uh, this topic was actually more uh, um it was scarce in a way that it didn't really investigate it uh, um, those eating exclusively plant-based proteins uh, diets they're more like let's get a bunch of omnivores and we supplement them either either with uh, plant protein or animal protein and look at uh, um, these acute responses and see what happened. And again, uh, it seems from these early studies that the animal protein was always uh, eliciting a greater anabolic response than the than the plant protein. But uh, our study was focused on the long-term response. So what we did is that we got a, a group of vegans. Uh, we wanted to, to study uh, individuals that would consume uh, exclusively plant-based diet. So we used vegan as a model for that. And we got a, a, a match it omnivore individuals, all healthy young individuals in this, in this study. They were similarly active. They were physically active individuals. They were about the same age, same height, same muscle mass, same muscle strength at baseline. And we did this very thorough assessment of their eating habits. So we really understand what their habitual uh, uh, dietary intake was and how it fluctuated over the days because uh, we wanted to do a uh, more fair comparison. What does that mean? It means that we wanted to, to investigate uh, if vegans and omnivores, both under adequate protein intakes, would differ in their ability to respond to a, to a strength training program. 
So by understanding what they ate regularly, we could uh, design uh, or individually tailor uh, supplements to, to, to elevate their protein intake, their daily protein intake. And what we wanted to do is, is have people eating 1.6 grams per kg body mass, which seems to be the breaking point to each protein doesn't matter. More protein won't make you gain more muscle mass. So that would be the adequate amount of protein, uh, uh, generic value. Uh, so everyone would, would have to, to, to take uh, 1.6 grams of protein a day. So to the vegans, we offered uh, soy protein isolate. So uh, um, they still under a 100% plant-based diet. And to the omnivores, we offered whey protein. And they add up to 80% of their protein coming from animal sources. So we're comparing two very different groups in respect of their protein source. Hmm. Um, all, all, all else is pretty much equal. No difference in energy intake. They're training the same. They're training with us. Uh, uh, so it's a supervised training program. We... Uh, um, individually supervised every training session. We did a whole bunch of assessments of these guys at a baseline and after three months of intervention. And we wanted to assess uh, muscle gains in different levels. So we assessed them with DEXA scans. And DEXA, uh, they really don't, don't look at muscle mass. They look at lean mass. And lean mass is not all muscle. There's muscle, there's water, there's connective tissue. Uh, everything that's not bone or fat is called lean mass in that sense. Mm. So uh, we're looking at more uh, macro uh, uh, um, parameter, so lean mass. Then we went on to look at uh, uh, muscle cross-sectional area by ultrasound imaging. So we have a technique where we, we can capture a, a cross-sectional image of your thigh muscle by ultrasound technique. And we can calculate what the cross-sectional area of that muscle is. So if you do that assessment uh, pre and post intervention, you know how much you add up in uh, in that cross-sectional area. And that accounts for muscle hypertrophy. But we wanted to look at muscle uh, in a more deeper level as well. So we took muscle biopsies of these individuals, both pre and post intervention. And we looked at the, the muscle fiber cross-sectional area too. So we have three different levels of assessment to make sure that we, we capture uh, any possible differences in their ability to respond to training. And we, of course, we did some functional assessments as well. So we look at uh, muscle strength gains. And to our uh, um, surprise, and when, I wouldn't say surprise, but to some people's surprise, what we found is that the vegans and omnivores, they gain exactly the same amount of muscle, no matter what the technique that we used to assess it was. Wow. Uh, they, so they gain the same limas, they gain the same muscle cross-sectional area, they gain the same fiber cross-sectional area and they gain, and they gain the same uh, uh, muscle strength as well so our conclusion to this study was that given the the protein in, intake is adequate 
there shouldn't be any differences in your ability to gain muscle while being vegan. But uh, of course, we have to restrict this to to healthy young individuals, and they may not play it out exactly the same when we talk about uh, some specific population, let's say elderly or those with some chronic conditions that might hamper or might compromise the, the muscle response. Uh, I'm not saying that it's going to be different, but we didn't test for that. So we mm. cannot ex extrapolate our findings because we know that elderly, they have a lesser anabolic response to to either nutrition or uh, exercise or the combination of both to, to be to be fair. So uh, elderly uh, has what we call the anabolic resistant uh, uh, response, which basically is to the same anabolic stimuli, uh, the response of an elderly person is usually less of that seen in a healthy young counterpart. So uh, um, we don't know how protein source might affect this. Mm. Even though we, we're giving enough protein to our elderly individual, that still might be a point of difference. We don't know. So wow. we, we, we like to be conservative and, and confine our results to what we study, which was healthy young individuals wow. in that particular study. That's fascinating. I would never have guessed that. That sounds like a very well done study done very thoughtfully. And it's, it's occurring to me, you know, I kind of find myself more in like the low carbohydrate or like carnivore space. I, I, if I would have known those results, I would have been pushing more of a plant-based diet and then there'd be more picanha for me. Like that's, that's just, that's just science. It's great. <laughs> what, a, what an amazing study Like to, to be able to learn that. I, it's so cool that people have the option. They can go plant-based if they choose. They can go animal-based if they choose, as long as they're getting an adequate amount of protein, like you said. That's, that's amazing. That's wonderful. So cool. Yeah. Wow. And that, that's good because uh, the, the plant-based uh, mentality, if, I, if that's a, a term, it, it's growing around the world, to, 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 to be honest. It's not... Uh, uh, here in Brazil solely, uh, uh, we see this everywhere. And it, it's a good thing. I, I mean, uh, there are lots of benefits of going plant-based. Uh, it's um, It requires some planning. It requires some uh, uh, expert support, some professional support, so you don't lack anything uh, in your diet. But uh, the benefits are are uh, uncontestable. I mean, there there's pretty significant literature that supports plant-based as a healthier approach uh, of eating and when compared to, to heavy uh, carnivore habits, uh, even though we like our picanha, as you <laughs> alluded to in the beginning, um, to, to rely heavily on, on red meat uh, is definitely not the best option. Mm. Um, it, it won't do you any harm if you do it moderately, but uh, uh, when in excess, of course, is not the best idea. Not too much picanha then. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you mentioned aging, which I find super interesting. I saw a study that you guys did. It, it seemed to be more about aging and protein timing or the number of times that protein made it into a meal. Can you elaborate oh, on yeah. that? That's so interesting. Yeah. That's pretty cool because that's a uh, uh, cross-sectional data from a study that we just got accepted. So it should be out in the next week or so uh, that there was a, a, a clinical trial, but this uh, cross-sectional data is pretty cool. And 
it goes a, a little like this because when you're talking about uh, protein balance and protein balance is a major regulator of muscle mass, um, there is this idea that you should uh, try to more evenly distribute your protein intake throughout the day between the, the main meals. And the reason for that is that uh, there's a limit to what you can, uh, the, the protein that you just uh, ate towards protein synthesis, muscle protein synthesis. Uh, that is different to say that you have a limit to, to, to protein absorption. It's not that. You can absorb a lot of protein in a, in a single meal, but the amount that you can use for protein synthesis, for muscle protein synthesis is limited. Uh, so to eat all your protein in one meal, supposedly, uh, we'll leave something on the table because you're not doing uh, multiple stimulations of these protein synthesis throughout the day. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's it, you're looking for a certain amount of leucine in your bolus of protein. Is that correct to be able to trigger muscle protein synthesis? That is perfect. Uh, leucine seems to be the, the the trigger for muscle protein synthesis. So, uh, leucine is an essential amino acid, and you want it to get it uh, uh, high in your bloodstream and then high within your muscle cell, so we can activate all the the mechanisms responsible for protein synthesis. So that's why there's this big debate about plant and animal protein because animal protein has more leucine. Uh, they're more leucine dense than plant protein, which sometimes even lacks uh, leucine uh, altogether. So that's one of the reasons why there's this big debate and why we ran the other study. I didn't get and wanted to get all technical, but it's good that you mentioned leucine. Uh, and yes, uh, uh, you, you need to get... Uh, a certain amount of leucine in your meal to 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 trigger this protein synthesis effect, and that seems to be more uh, when you're uh, uh, older, when uh, as you age, uh, in comparison to a healthy young individual. Hence the anabolic resistance that resistance that I just mentioned. So when you when you as as you age, you need. Uh, uh, meals even more dense in leucine than before and you need to do that multiple times a day and what we did in this study is to investigate whether the the number of high protein containing meals uh, actually related to muscle mass and muscle strength at baseline in this pre-frail and frail elderly individuals so it's a pretty cool study because we we uh, got to to uh, assess a, a pretty good number of uh, elderly individuals, but not really like healthy, active, uh, older individuals, but on the contrary, very frail uh, elderly individuals, which are the, the ones that might benefit the most from this sort of intervention. And we figured that um, the more high-protein meals uh, uh, a day that you make, the more muscle mass and muscle strength uh, you might have. That's an association study. It's not a, a prospective or a causality uh, uh, study, but uh, uh, that gives base for different uh, uh, 
it settles the ground for different clinical trials that we want to run. So we definitely want to run a study looking at protein distribution in this population and see if uh, eating the same amount of protein, but with different distribution and more evenly distributed uh, versus a skewed uh, protein intake, that if that might affect uh, the muscle mass of these individuals on the long term. So that was a pretty good uh, uh, publication that adds to the literature as well in, in the protein metabolism and muscle wow. mass regulation in elderly. Yeah, it's pretty wow. cool. That's awesome. That's so cool. I mean, even even though it's not like a randomized controlled trial and it's just showing an association, that's still something. Like people can use that information while we're waiting to collect more data. I think most people just know that like if you're getting more protein in your diet, you will be stronger, you'll be healthier. I, I think that's a that's a big clue. It yeah, it might not be causality, but it sure is a pretty good step in the right direction. What did you define yeah. as a whole as a um a high protein diet or a high protein meal? What did that look like? A high protein meal uh would be I wouldn't say high protein meal, but uh um uh... We 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 used to use that terminology a high protein containing meal uh, as a meal containing thirty grams of protein or more mm. in that particular study, gotcha. which uh, which might not seem that much, but when you go uh, into the elderly uh, population. It's not that easy to make and meet that much protein at a single meal sure. uh, when you age. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different things that happen to you that sort of like uh, 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 acts together and makes you eat less and less protein. So there are dental problems. Most people use pro, 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 how do you say that when you have the uh, prosthetics? Is oh, yeah. that a yep. real word? Yep. Prosthetics. Yeah, it. So that 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 makes you difficult to to chew on a on a red meat. Uh, so there are digestive problems as well. And it, it's harder now to digest the red meat. Uh, they have a uh, uh, smaller appetite. Uh, sometimes there are income problems that comes with uh, a retirement, their loneliness, depression, all of that comes together to, to uh, 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 lower protein intake in the elderly population, mm. and the elderly population, I was just saying, have uh, the the anabolic resistance thing going yeah. in their way. So they're the ones that need protein the most, and yeah. they're the ones that are harder for you at a clinical setting to 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 get them to get them to to eat more protein. There's this paradox because protein are also very satiable. Uh, uh, it's also a very satiable nutrient. When you get a, a, a protein that is high, a meal that is high in protein, you get a, a you get a satiation effect that is much bigger uh, compared to a, a equivalent equivalent or a meal that that is high on carbs. Let's say. Mm. Um, so if you do a high protein meal in elderly, sometimes you end up affecting their entire day because they will eat less throughout the rest of the day. Yeah. So that's not good too. So it's a, it's a real paradox. You need to get them to eat more protein. And if they eat more protein, they tend to eat less of everything else. <laughs> so so it's, it's, a, it's real difficult to, to manage uh, an elderly patient in that way. 
Yeah, that would be very challenging, but but so important. I mean, most people know you can live to be 100, but most people, the way they get to 100 is not the best way for a human to age. I mean, they, they could be on medications for 70 years or need surgeries and live a very unhealthy life using medications, all kinds of stuff, and, and you know, get to 100, where I think most of us really care more about health span than we do lifespan. Like, I, I don't want to live to 100 if 50 of those years are going to be horrible. I'd rather live to 50 and have a kick-ass life and be strong and live with my family and, and serve the community and do all the things that I have high values in. And so I, I think that work is just so important and that message is so important to get out to people. Um, and I like that it was about 30 grams. I, I usually tell people like to, to get to that kind of trigger where you're getting enough leucine, depending on the food, it's about 30 to 40 grams of that food that will get you that amount. And you don't really need much more than that, but that seems to be a good baseline to get to. Yeah, you're correct again. Yeah, uh, uh, that seems to be uh, uh, sort of like a magic number for younger people, like uh, uh, 20 to 30 to older people, 30 to 40 grams. So you're about right. Mm. That should be enough. Wow. Well, in 2020, your research kind of shifted a little bit. It was about the same topic, but it was involving the pandemic. We all know, I think, that the pandemic is not going particularly well <laughs> where you are, which is so terrible. Um, and we know that it's not impacting everybody evenly. If, you're, if your economic situation is not that great, it's probably going to impact you more. Um, we know that, that you know, COVID-19 is not doing great with people that have, you know, metabolic issues. Um and comorbidities and things like that. I'm, I'm curious to hear what are some of the things that you learned doing your studies during the COVID pandemic that related the two? Um, during the pandemic, of course, most of the research activities uh, had to be restricted or even uh, stopped because uh, our uh, we're, we're within the, the university hospital. Our lab is uh, in the university hospital, to be more precise. So the whole hospital was turned into a, uh, into a, a, a COVID-only uh, area, and we couldn't get our regular patients into the hospital to, to keep on the trials uh, for safety reasons, of course, and because the hospital was being used most for COVID patients or almost exclusively for COVID patients. So we decided that we went we wanted to, to use our resources and try to, to contribute it uh, with science in that area as well. So one of the studies that we did, we did more than one. We did quite a few actually in this uh, past year, year and a half. But one of the studies that we were trying to, to get published, it might come out in a, in a few weeks, uh, is the one that uh, we assessed the patients upon hospital admission and we assessed them for muscle mass and muscle strength, uh, general muscle strength measure for uh, using hand grip strength uh, and assessing muscle mass by means of the ultrasound muscle imaging that I just talked about. And we learned two very interesting things. Um, we learned that uh, uh, the condition, the muscle health status that you get into the hospital with is sort of like, uh, uh, it sort of like predicts the hospital length of stay. That is to say that uh, uh, if you uh, those that came in with less muscle mass and less muscle strength 
tended to, to stay uh, longer at the hospital than wow. those uh, at a greater um, with greater muscle mass and strength, with better muscle health, we can put in general terms. So that 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 send, sends out an important message that you need to stay uh, healthy uh, and physical activity and nutrition are paramount in that. Uh, so even with the pandemic and the quarantine and social, social isolation, um, we need uh, uh, policies that uh, uh, stimulate uh, uh, healthy habits. So stay active even at home, uh, uh, good nutrition, uh, even though uh, we're in quarantine. So uh, you have a better, uh, uh, you, you be in a better shape in case you get infected with the disease. You have a, a better fighting chance to, to, to put in different terms. And the other thing that we learn is that the hospitalization uh, is not new, but uh, is new to COVID, um, both findings. The first one that I just mentioned and this one, uh, the hospitalization actually uh, is very debilitating on the muscle of these patients. So we assess them at uh, medical discharge as well. These data we're still working on but uh, we got to assess uh, how much the hospitalization period uh, uh, affected muscle mass and strength and functionality of these patients. And we're following them in their uh, daily living to, to see how this has impacted uh, uh, or the burden in, 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 the, in the health system by how much are, are these patients costing to the, to the public health system because they will need more uh, visits to the doctor, they will require rehabilitation, they will require medication. And if we can do something to mitigate the, the, the impact of the hospitalization on these patients, perhaps with in-bed uh, uh, therapy while they're hospitalized, if we can get them uh, uh, in better shape before, even before they, they, get, uh, uh, they get infected, this might all come to, to, to mitigate the impact of the pandemic overall. So uh, those are pretty cool findings as well. We're working on this data and uh, it goes uh, in line with what we think about exercise and nutrition as real uh, health tools to, to everyone. Wow. Even so when we talk about COVID, yeah. That's so fascinating. I mean, hopefully one day this pandemic ends and wraps up and we can move on, but certainly there's going to be other, you know, infectious diseases that will be, you know, going around. We already have several going around as is. And so I, yeah, it, regardless of what this means exactly for COVID, I think these are just great general things to, to know and do anyway. And I'm curious for you personally, after all these years of study, I want to know what you do. Like what, what practices do you imply in your life, you use them for your own health because you've learned about them in your career? What are some of the favorite things that you do? That is such a cool question because I, uh, I actually got forced into some of them and some of them I, I incorporated because I learned more about them. So <laughs> uh, I used to be real heavy on the, the strength training, on the weight lifting stuff, uh, but I got a, a wrist injury a few years back playing tennis and this aggravated and it turned into a, a, a um, sort of like a arthritis type of thing. And that's very limiting to, to keep weight lifting. 
So I had to stop this and that sort of like opened up a whole different bunch of opportunities that I, I wasn't open to before. So a few years ago, I, I started canoe paddling and then the risk became an issue for that too. Then I start playing. One thing that we have here, I don't think you guys had that in the US, but it's so cool. Uh, you, since you've been in Brazil, you, you've probably seen this. It's called foot volley. You've uh, seen this before? That, I'm so glad Isn't you said that. Isn't this cool? It's amazing. Okay, for the listener. <laughs> for the, for I, those who are, who are listening, look it up. It, uh, it, it's so hard. It, it's very hard and I'm terrible at it. I, I, I not even pretend that I'm, I'm yeah, half good at it. I, I suck, but uh, it's so cool and you're out on a, on a beach and you played uh, and well it, it's awesome but uh look it up and you you see what we're talking about i remember exactly where i was i was in chapico in uh, santa catarina and it's on a volleyball court and these guys are all playing volleyball but they're not using their arms it's all feet knees chest head like soccer blew me away that's amazing if you can do that even a little bit without tipping over dude you've got you've got my respect for sure <laughs> Yeah, it's so cool and I'm loving it. And now I started uh, cycling as well. So I'm doing stuff that I don't need my hands to. So foot volley is one of them and cycling is the other thing that I'm getting into, just getting into right now. Mm. And unfortunately, everything that needs uh, to put on a strain on the wrist, it's very limiting for me right now. Well, you said something really cool, and I, I just think this speaks so much to who you are as a person. You called it an opportunity. You said you were closed off to some of these other things before. You have this potential setback, something that looks like this horrible thing, but it is also an opportunity. You recognized it as one, and now you got experience with new things, new new sports that you wouldn't have tried before. And I think that's just such a cool thing to you know say, to, to be able to pivot and use some of those you know setbacks and use them for our good and learn and grow and try something different. I, I just think that's so cool. Um, what are you working on for the future? I'm really curious to hear um, what else you've got going on. Oh, I, I was just working on it before we, we, we got into this call. And I think you, you're going to love this one too, because it's such a cool data. Uh, this is a spoiler because uh, we're finishing the, the paper as we speak, as we speak. Uh, we got to, I, I told you that our lab is uh, associated with the rheumatology, rheumatology division within the, the, the university hospital, right? So we have access to the rheumatology patients to different, uh, different uh, uh, diseases that encompass rheumatic diseases. And what we did is that we got to vaccinate all of our patients so we have all of them vaccinated right now. Uh, wow. They're about like they're about like a thousand patients, uh, more or less. And what we did is that we assessed physical activity levels in those patients. And what we're doing is that we're uh, uh, understanding, trying to understand how being physically active affects the vaccine response because they're, uh, they're autoimmune diseases, the rheumatic diseases. So these patients are uh, immune suppressed. Their vaccine response is less than what you get uh, in a healthy individual at the same age. Wow. Uh, so what we learned, we just learned and we fascin fascinated by this is that being physically active actually boosts your vaccine response. <laughs> 
it, it's fantastic. Wow. You don't get you still you still don't get the same response uh, as a healthy individual, but you get a bigger response that if you're not physically active, and that is just fantastic because these patients are the ones more prone to get infected because they're immune depressed. That's right. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> what what a cool it? study. I, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Dude, this has been such a great conversation. Uh, even if we just stopped after Picanha and the Celiso, um, <laughs> I have learned. I mean, you should see my face. I'm just like my mouth's open. I'm like just like so excited. So much cool stuff. If you had one simple piece of advice that you would like to give the listener of this conversation, what would that be? Oh, be physically active. Find something that you you like doing, uh, and uh, uh, try to get the, that that. Uh, uh, Sort of like the aesthetics mentality out of the, the the game while you're doing it. Find something that gives you pleasure doing, even if it's walking the dog uh, with your with your kid and uh, something that you're not doing. Or uh, um, find something that makes it enjoyable for you if you don't find exercise enjoyable, and you see that what it associates with might grow on you and 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 make it uh, uh, something uh, um, that eventually you end up loving. So, so like a team sport, uh, uh, if you don't, if you, if you had never contemplated the idea of playing softball in your community, I know it's something big in the U S go and go for just for the fun of it. And don't, don't think of it as an exercise, a structured exercise, but being with your friends, being with the people you like, and eventually you will grow on you and you, you make a thing out of it and exercise is such an important part of your of our lives that we uh, uh always uh, uh like to think that uh, we 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 uh, use the term exercise physiology right as a special thing as you're studying the physiology of exercise but to be honest uh, to be active is what is physiological, what is natural for the human being. So get up and move a little. That's good for you. Man, that is such great advice. That is so well said. It is very accessible. Anybody could start now. And maybe by next week, they're going to be a pro Fuchivoli player. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'll love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Hamilton Rochelle, where you should, would you... you should start? You should start. You should start something uh, in Utah. Oh, I don't geez. know. I, I don't know if you guys have that, but <laughs> okay. it'd, be, it'd be awesome to see foot volley in Utah. I mean, uh, that would be <laughs> if we started it, the game wouldn't last very long. I'll just say that. <laughs> I know, I know what my soccer skills are and they're, they're not great. I, I, unfortunately, I maybe have some Brazilian blood in me from being down there, but that was one that never really, never really took hold. Uh, where should we send people if they want to connect with you or ask you any questions? Uh, I'm not a, a, a big social media guy. I, I do have a Instagram profile. It's Hamilton.Rochelle. Uh, I don't know if it's my name's going to show up anywhere in a, in a, in a page, but uh, it's, uh, it's how you write it. Hamilton.Rochelle, my, my last name. Uh, you find me on Instagram and then you can reach me. Uh, we can talk and I, you can get my email if you interested in research we do if you're in academia and you want you're prospecting possibilities of going abroad for research we have lots of people from uh, different parts of the world working with us in our lab um, if you're just curious about what we do if you just want to 
uh, uh, reach out and say hi. Uh, I'll love to, to, to speak with every one of you. That's tremendous. Man, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so very much for everything that you do in your research. It's 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 so it's good and it's really relevant. It's so important to learn these things. And you guys are just crushing it down there and giving us some really good usable data. So Dr. Hamilton Rochelle, thank you so much for everything that you do. Thank you to everybody in your lab who does amazing work. And thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. It's really been an honor to have you on the show. Okay, see, thank you for having me over. It was a real honor and a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I hope uh, uh, people enjoyed this, uh, enjoyed it as well. Yeah. So thank you so much. We'll keep in touch. Absolutely. We definitely will. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. Mm-hmm.